Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. With the presidential campaign in full swing, both parties have shown renewed interest in reforming the nation's health care system. As the House convenes its first Medicare for All hearing, questions remain about the high price tag of the proposal and whether Democratic leadership will actually bring the legislation to a vote. Drew Lippman moderates a conversation with Emily Felder, Nadim Elshami, and Jerome Murray, providing insight into the likelihood of a bipartisan bill on health care reform and the future of the Affordable Care Act. Hi, and welcome to another Brownstein podcast. Today we're going to provide a health care update. I'm Drew Littman, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Emily Felder, Jerome Murray, and Nadim Elshami. Let's jump right in, folks. In the 2018 elections, Republicans lost control of the House. How has Democratic control changed the prospects for health care legislation? And I'm going to turn to a House veteran here. Nadim? The prospect of uh, House legislation is uh, dim, right? The most important thing for House Democrats in in terms of uh, taking action now is protecting the Affordable Care Act. This is what they need to do over the next two years of of a Democratic majority in the House, a Republican majority in the Senate, and President Trump in the White House. In terms of large pieces of legislation, in terms of that focuses on whether it's Medicare for all, you know, Medicare for some, or whatever you want to call it. It's not going to happen this Congress. The top priority is to protect the ACA. And Emily, you recently joined from HHS. Is that the view from the Republican side as well, or would you, would you look at it slightly differently? I would agree with that. I think that there is a heightened oversight focus um, from House Democrats. I think you've seen you know, a number of letters requesting information and um, on ACA implementation and on unaccompanied minors. I think you also see a number of oversight questions when the secretary has appeared before the House in his appropriations and budget hearings. And I think, too, though, drug pricing will sort of be the only um, bipartisan um, major piece of legislation that has a hope of passing because that's a priority for both Republicans and Democrats. Jerome, what do you think? Um, drug pricing legislation, a possibility? Bipartisan legislation, bicameral legislation, a possibility? Something else, nothing else? I mean, I think, you know, there is a lot of conversations about it. But even, you know, given the state of government as it is, where you've got sort of Republicans in the Senate and these in the House and Trump, Trump is such a variable. Um, and so I think it makes things very difficult to try to navigate and predict. Um, I, I think, you know, if you look at uh, some of the things that happened with uh, Senator McConnell and, and Trump himself, I think it's even hard for someone like Senator McConnell to determine what Trump is going to do. So I think trying to figure out whether we can get something large in the drug pricing space, it's very difficult to try to determine whether that can happen. But one never knows. Well, continuing that thought, Jerome, the president shocked most observers recently, and I would include the Senate majority leader who you just referenced in that group, uh, by declaring that the administration would switch positions on a legal challenge to the Affordable Care Act and would adopt the position that the ACA, as known as Obamacare, should be struck down. Were you as surprised as I was? Uh, you know, nothing surprises me these days. However, I would say that for something like 
health care for the administration to come out and say we are going to support uh, a position that doesn't support this particular legislation. I, you know, I think there are a lot of people who are at risk who didn't have insurance before who are obviously going to be affected by this. I, I, I've never seen something like this. But again, we're in different times these days. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, Although it came as a surprise to many people, particularly Republicans in Congress, I think this is ultimately consistent with the administration's views on the ACA and Obamacare generally. President Trump was very much stung by the failure of the repeal and replace effort. And you can see that from his references to McCain's vote, Mm. you know, a year later. And so I think that President Trump and his advisors recognize that health care is an issue that drives people to the polls. And they can either run from it and they can let the Democrats take control of the narrative or they can face it head on. Mm -hmm. And I think the decision puts health care front and center for the administration. And he sees it as an opening to sort of present a conservative plan that's an alternative to Obamacare and take another stab at it in 2020. And so whether that plan is popular uh, whether it can meet his campaign promises, that remains to be seen. But they're going to face it head on. Face it head on, indeed. Nadim, you are, of course, uh, chief of staff to now Speaker Pelosi, who is hoping that the House would flip in the last election cycle. What was the effect or the impact of health care, health care reform, Republican efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act in the election? Was it instrumental in throwing the House to the Democrats? Oh, absolutely, one hundred percent. No question about it. If you look at a a a point where Democrats were united fully, was about protecting um, uh, the ACA's pre-existing conditions provisions. That was a clear point of differentiation with Republicans, and Republicans on the Hill voted. 60, 70 times to repeal the Affordable Care Act. That's fine. Again, that is their position. But for many, let me me just go take a step back here. Republicans have had the opportunity for many years to, and they often talked about repeal and replace, right? What is the replace? There was really not a, a piece of legislation that they coalesced around. And then when they thought that they had something, they just couldn't repeal the legislation. Look, we are dealing with a, a degree of whiplash here in Washington, D.C., like we've never seen before. The president has an administration that has taken steps within the framework of the ACA, so his administration is for it, while the president directs his Justice Department to go ahead and completely repeal the Affordable Care Act. So he's completely against it. Which is it? This causes uncertainty, especially to some of our clients in the ACA space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and hopefully this will come to an end soon and everything will be, uh, whether it's in the courts or legislatively, but we have, to, we have to have some certainty in the marketplace. I would agree with that. I mean, I think that there is Obamacare fatigue generally. And I think when you see the lukewarm reaction that the president got to his you know, announcement that the DOJ would sort of change its position. I think that's because folks were sort of looking forward to having a debate about drug pricing, something different than the ACA in the healthcare space. And so I agree. I think that, you know, uh, one way or another, there will be a resolution. And I think people are hoping that it comes sooner rather than later. Nadim, to return to what you were saying about the advantage in campaigns to 
Democrats were defending a status quo that people had come to find that they liked more or less. When we look ahead to the next campaign, the 2020 cycle, it's almost a completely different picture because it's really Democrats who are challenging the status quo. And maybe Republicans will, maybe President Trump will. But but at this moment, you have the most crowded Democratic primary field in our memory, certainly since before the early 70s when I became uh, conscious. You've got 18 or 19 real candidates in, uh, maybe a bunch more to come. Almost everyone seems to have a health care reform plan. You've got caucuses on the Hill, members of the House and Senate, sometimes members of the House and Senate working together, at least on the D side, with alternative plans. The phrase Medicare for all is invoked consistently. Just today, as we're, as we're sitting here, Bernie Sanders reintroduced his Medicare for all bill. Very few bills get reintroduced two or three months after they were That's introduced. Right. But I guess he feels like he gets a lot out of it. What do you think? Well, no, the, the reason why he reintroduced the legislation is because he wanted to bring into realignment with some of the House Democrats who have a bill that went even further than his bill. But that's a small minority of the House. Mm -hmm. And look, and I don't discount this, but if you look at changing health care in a major way in this country, you're going to need 218 votes in the House. Mm -hmm. You're going to need 60 votes in the Senate, and you're going to need a president willing to sign it. Mm -hmm. She or he has to be able to say, look, I got the bill on my desk. I like it and I'm going to sign it. At this moment, I just don't see this happening, whether after 2020, maybe 2022, maybe in 2024. But again, the focus of the leadership here is on one thing, and that is the Affordable Care Act. Can you make it stronger? Can you expand mm -hmm. it? Can you add provisions to it that would bring in more people to have access to uh, insurance and access to health care? That is the, that's the immediate challenge at this time. We, yeah, we are in a political race. We are in a, um, a, a time where you know, candidates are trying to differentiate between each other and between the Trump administration. But it's not going to happen at this time. Jerome, you bring your own experience to bear from working in a senior position in the House. Is there, is there a schism among Democrats, or is this sort of a utopian, let a thousand flowers bloom stage that Democrats are in, where they feel free to play with ideas, maybe partly because they know none of them, as Nadine suggests, none of them are, will be enacted. Yeah, I mean, look, it's an opportunity to look at various ideas, but I think Nadim is right that this is going to be, uh, you know, to some degree, I think, a referendum on protecting the ACA. Look, there are millions of people who are at risk. I mean, let's just be honest with it. And with the position that the Trump administration has taken, um, you know, in this lawsuit, it really exposes uh, an issue there where I think Democrats can take advantage of. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these are real issues affecting real people, and you really have to start digging into the details. Well, what happens if the ACA goes away? I mean, in all practicality, really, what happens? Um, maybe you could end up with Medicare for all then. <laughs> I mean, that's, maybe that's the, the president's worst nightmare, right? Well, well, but I think we're laughing. I, I know I was, but, but you're not being facetious, I, I think. If the ACA is struck down... What's logical what's, if Democrats get what, a majority? What's, what's left? You know, what, what's what's the next step? If Democrats are starting from scratch, essentially, that's right. That's then I right. think you probably do get Medicare for all. You get something, yeah. something new, and um, and, and maybe something that's more disruptive, say, than the affordable it's care. Disruptive of, of 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 the system. Look, I, I I do not believe that ACA is going to be struck down. I was there 
in the room when the decision came down that ACA was constitutional, and and that was uh, that was an amazing day. Prior to that, you know, the, the leader Pelosi at the time was saying it's it's you know it will be constitutional. So she somehow she knew, but it's not going to get struck down. But should it be struck down, then you will have a, an open field, and unfortunately, Republicans are going to be held responsible. And they're going to come, there's going to come a moment here where they have to make a choice. They're going to work with the Democrats or they're going to step away again. Emily, uh, your mind must be racing. Not, not, <laughs> out, not outpacing you, but, but what are your thoughts on, on what's happening politically? Do you think the Democrats who are campaigning on more disruptive health care proposals are overreaching and that there's a risk for Democrats? How does it look from your side? You know, I think that when you when you think about repeal and replace the ACA, I don't think anyone in the Republican Party, um, or certainly the majority of the Republican Party, wants the ACA to be repealed or overturned in its entirety without a replacement. So you have to think about what are the types of conservative solutions that folks in the Republican Party and the administration are considering. So one thing that they've talked about a lot is sort of the opportunity for states to take a more active role, Mm -hmm. right? So getting the federal government out of the business of setting prices, out of setting, you know, what every single individual American needs as far as their plan coverage, you know, that's sort of the minutia and a detail that Republicans aren't supportive of having the federal government be involved in. And so when you look at what's in the president's budget and the Graham-Cassidy plan, certainly that's probably not going to be the framework that they adopt. But when you look at the general foundation for that, it's all about giving states funds and opportunities to set up healthcare policies that work for individual states and individual citizens. It's returning control to local governments. And I think those are the types of principles that conservatives are considering when they think about, you know, another opportunity to potentially um, alter the healthcare landscape post-ACA. But I also think that there's folks, Republicans within the administration and in Congress, that are saying, while Obamacare, while the ACA is the law of the land, we are going to implement it with conservative principles where we can. And so I think that it's a two-pronged approach. I don't think it's inconsistent. Um, And I think that's sort of where you're going to see a lot of Republicans in Congress and in the administration sort of focus their efforts. And and when you talk about devolving responsibility for health care and health insurance from the federal government to the states, um, that's something that presumably could have been done when George W. Bush was president. Is that something Republicans would need legislative authority to do, or is it something they could begin to do administratively? So I think in the framework, the Graham-Cassidy framework, they would certainly need legislative authority. I think, though, one initiative that the administration has pursued is sort of waivers, state innovation waivers. Mm -hmm. The ACA gave HHS the opportunity to waive certain laws and provisions related to health care coverage. And are you talking specifically about Medicaid expansion or are you talking more I'm talking general? about in the private market. Uh-huh. So, yes. So states have the authority to apply for a waiver to HHS to say we want to waive some of the requirements in the private insurance market, some of the more restrictive requirements. Um, and so the administration put out guidance you know, about six months ago that would give states additional authority 
and more flexibility. Of course, to Nadim's point, Democrats in Congress aren't excited about that additional flexibility because they think it's too flexible, that they're giving states too much authority. But that's an example of how the administration has tried to work within the existing framework to put additional flexibilities for states and give... um, you know, more conservative principles of voice within the existing legal framework. Very thorough and very clear. Thanks, Emily. Let's let's go back to talk about the, the presidential campaign action. When Senator Sanders uh, reintroduced his bill today, uh, he had four senators who were running for president as co-sponsors. Uh, how significant is that? Is is Medicare for all the minimum bid? Is some other uh, version of it? which doesn't completely eliminate private health insurance, an acceptable alternative, or as Nadim suggests, is um, reforming and improving the Affordable Care Act. Is that sexy enough for Democratic candidates? Jerome, you want to take a shot at that? I think that uh, protecting the ACA, I think for some, is still very valid and very important. Now, look, uh, the Medicare for All train right now is the sexy topic, and I think everyone is willing to you know, get out there and speak on it and test it and see how that works for them. Um, But I think at the end of the day, uh, what may work in a primary may not necessarily work in a general. I I just think that folks need to be careful in really understanding, again, as we were talking about earlier on, well, what is Medicare for all? What, What does that mean? And I think folks can really get caught in that trap. We need to be really thoughtful about what we're talking about when it comes to whether it's Medicare for all, universal access, or whatever the case may be. But it seems to be that folks are willing to get on the train of Medicare for all and to test it and and see if it works for them. Um, But there's still a long way to go. To some members of Congress, Medicare for all means Medicare, at least over time, completely replaces private insurance. Others, the definition seems to be somewhat elastic. Others would argue that it means anyone could buy into Medicare. Or in the case of one bill, anyone who's turned 50 can buy into Medicare. So there seem to be a lot of variations. And I notice candidates, one of the Democratic presidential candidates who's gotten a lot of traction has shifted from saying in her stump speech, I support Medicare for all, to saying, I support the goals of Medicare for all. And sort of made that adjustment very quietly without a lot of fanfare. But People are watching closely and, and picking that up. Nadim, is that reflective of where we're going, this sort of either very broadly defined Medicare for all or just lots of different alternatives? It's a, it's a tableau, and you, you could paint it however, however you wish, however you please. Look, if you look at what Democrats are doing right now in hearings uh, in the House, Democrats in the House, committee hearings throughout – um, they really try to focus in the healthcare space on, on perhaps three uh, major issues here. One is cost, whether it's cost of prescription drugs, whether it's cost of insurance, uh, whether it's cost of, of hospital stays uh, or bills. Uh, the second is accessibility, who has access to, to drugs or to insurance and so on. And then finally, the third one is protections, especially those protections within the Affordable Care Act. So if if you look at those three issues, they fit nicely within the Affordable Care Act, but they could also shift a little bit towards a larger, uh, more uh, expansive health care legislation. And 
during the ACA debate, you had the public option provision that was not successfully passed in the Senate. Um, and, and that is, at the time, that is about as far as Democrats were able to go in the House in order to get 218 votes, but they just couldn't get it over the line mm-hmm. in, the, in the Senate. You're having hearings about our current state of health care in this country and how uh, drug companies, insurance companies, hospitals, doctors, and others fit into it. Well, you know, that's a fascinating point. If I can expand on your point a little bit, I think what you're saying is knowing that legislation can't really pass, can't pass both chambers, Congress is really focusing on oversight, the House is really focusing on oversight, and really building a case for changes when the time is ripe. Is that is that about right? Um, uh, yes, absolutely. And I'm not going to speak for, for Republicans in the Senate because there, there certainly there's been some appetite for some um, changes within our health care system, whether mm-hmm. it's surprise billing or either it's, oh, it's prescription drugs. Um, but that, that's, that's right. I mean, if, if Democrats make enough, um, make the case today about why things must change, um, Republicans have taken notice. And perhaps it could be an opportunity for a smaller health care type legislation that the Trump administration would be willing to, uh, to sign. You know, Emily, Talking about both chambers of Congress and what can get passed, what can get signed, um, calls to mind the fact, I think little-noticed fact, that Senator Lamar Alexander, who chairs the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, has announced that he's not running for re-election. Now, Alexander, I'll speak, I'm speaking, of course, as a Democrat, but Alexander was viewed as a senator who is adept at reaching out to both sides. Um, skills I think he acquired possibly as a governor when he was governor of, of Tennessee. Should we be looking for something specific in his last two years or last year and a half? How do you see the effect of Alexander leaving? And I'm wondering about the more general issue of does the Senate need more governors? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it goes back to what I said earlier about sort of states having, you know, the ability to really test a lot of policy and sort of know what's best for their for their citizens. And I think that, you know, governors have to work across the aisle with Republicans and Democrats, and they are in a smaller fishbowl. So they see their political opponents at the grocery store and they see a lot them of those at, capitals are actually fairly small. Sure. They're like small towns. They're yeah. not all major metropolitan areas. Exactly. And so they're used to working across the aisle. And you saw that last Congress with Alexander um, reaching across the aisle and working with Patty Murray, the ranking member of the HELP Committee, on an ACA stabilization bill that would add in reinsurance and a couple other programs, additional outreach funding, that sort of thing. So they were able to sort of work together to say, what are things that we can do to sort of bring down premiums, increase access within the existing legal framework. And so I think that losing Alexander, uh, you lose sort of a pragmatic legislator. Um, and I think that you that's going to decrease the amount of sort of working across the aisle. Now, that said, I think Grassley and Wyden have really come together on issues like drug pricing. I think that they've worked together on oversight hearings, um, and they both share a lot of frustration there with what's going on with drug pricing policy and mm-hmm. increasing drug costs. So you see some collaboration there, but on an issue like the ACA, the fact that Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray were able to work together to put together something that they both supported, ultimately it didn't pass, but I think that's not the type of bipartisan agreement that you see very much in the Senate. 
Hmm. Well, rather than end on that note, let's let's see if we can get in some predictions. Nadim, I'll start with you. Um, are your grandchildren ever going to have to have private insurance, or will the government take care of them from cradle to grave? We'll have private insurance. They will have private insurance. A supplement to, to government-provided insurance or, or something like what we have now through their employers or um, I'm, I'm pretty old, exchange. so I'm pretty sure they'll have, they'll have insurance. <laughs> Jerome, children are grandchildren? I believe the same. I, I still think there'll be, you know, employer-provided coverage. I think there'll be private insurance. Um, you know, the conversation years down the road may have may shift a little bit. Um, but again, um, it's a very complex idea and, and complex thought. It's worth thinking about. But again, I think that certainly private insurance, employer-provided insurance, that, that will be available. Down Can there. I just add? Yes, of course. There could be an option for it, like a public type um, option, in um, mm-hmm. you know, for them. Emily, let me ask you to make a prediction on a different front. Are any of the Democrats running for president going to specify how their health care plans would be paid for? I can't imagine that they. <laughs> what, whatever happened to administrative overhead and, and waste? That's three hundred billion dollars a year, right there. Right, and that's and to your earlier point, I think that's why there's not a lot of hearings right now on Medicare for all in the House, and despite the fact that Republicans have been asking for hearings on this in the Budget Committee and well, elsewhere. So, so, so uh, let me ask you to state that more clearly as a conclusion. Sure. The reason why the House hasn't been holding hearings on programs like Medicare for all is. Because they don't know how they're going to pay for it. Democrats don't know how they're going to pay for sure. it. Sure. And, and are afraid to, to have that become the subject of conversation. Absolutely. I think that's a good provocative point to end on. Thank you, colleagues. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farbershreck podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.